As uh, many of you know, we've been in a series, um, The Dream at 10th and Main, and we've been talking through our identity as a church. We are a family of priests revealing Christ. We also talked through some of our core values, people matter, kingdom growth, and today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about service. And to be honest with you, as I was thinking through this core value of service, I thought this is going to be so simple because you know, I know we should serve, Jesus serves, so we should serve. And then I got to thinking that this message is going to be a little bit more complicated than I thought because when we talk about service, a lot of people come at this uh, very differently. There's a, a wide a- array or a variety of approaches towards service. And here's what I mean. If I were to tell you we are a full-service church, how would you interpret that? There are a number of people that say, oh, okay, I know what a full-service church is. That means that we get ministered to womb to tomb. That means I come and I get served from preschoolers through homebound and everywhere in between, and we just get served fully. For others, full service would be when we serve, when we do something, we do it with our whole heart. For others, it would be a full service church. It's the kind of church where I better get there early or I'm not going to get a seat because the service is full. For others, a full service church would be I want to be in a place where all of my gifts and talents, my shape can be used for maximal effectiveness. And so when we talk about service and full service, A lot of us are coming at this in different ways. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to try to build some consensus concerning what we mean by this core value of service by looking at service specifically through the lens of Jesus Christ, specifically through the lens of Jesus Christ crucified through the cross. We want a cruciformed view of service, a Christ-shaped, cross-shaped view of service. And that's exactly what Jesus gives us in Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 35. Now, I know typically we will stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word, and we're going to do that in just a moment when we get to the mountain peak portion of that passage. But for now, I just want to read through some of these verses because I'm going to be explaining along the way, and I don't want you standing up for seven minutes because I know some people that that's distracting. Okay, so just follow with me as we begin with verse 35, Jesus teaching us about service largely through the sacrifice of the cross. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, that's pretty bold. They don't even tell him what they want yet. They just say, we want you to do for us whatever you ask, whatever we ask of of you. And that's, a you know, sometimes people will treat religious leaders in that way. and, And when they do, the temptation is just to go... You know, repent or burn. Uh, But Jesus doesn't do that. He's the Lord, but he meets them in their fleshly desires. He's so humble that he actually entertains their request. And here's his mild response. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. And then they reply. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Give us positions of prominence. We want to be on the top of the food chain when you come into power. Now, I want you to recognize absolutely how impetuous this request is because Jesus Christ has already established Peter as the leader of the apostolic band outside of himself. In fact, to some degree, Peter has already been functioning in this capacity even before Jesus' departure. And so, you know, Jesus has things set up. So when John, along with James, 
comes to Jesus and, and they make this request, they're basically telling Jesus, we don't think you know what you're doing. And uh, we think that you need to have somebody else in charge. And so humbly, we nominate ourselves. And, and it's got to be kind of put offish because they're nominating themselves for all of the wrong reasons. I mean, for starters, John thinks that maybe he should be advantaged because he's related to Jesus. I mean, he is a cousin of Jesus. His mom, Salome, is Jesus's aunt. And bloodlines, maybe they count for something. And after all, John, along with James, have been privileged to certain information or certain events that other disciples have not seen. John, along with James, they've seen Jesus transfigured. They're one of the less than a handful of people who saw Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. They've got an inside track. On top of that, they're a cut above all the rest of the disciples because, after all, their dad has money. He's got a business. They're the sons of Zebedee, and he has this fishing business. At least it's big enough to have a few boats and some employees. And probably one of the employees to the family was Peter. And so here are the sons of the boss, and now they're having to be underneath Peter, who is an employee of the family. This is not really going to work. And so they let Jesus know, you need to rethink this. And it's not just that John, along with James, makes this request. Mom gets involved. Because if you look over in Matthew chapter 20, to be specific, it's the mom who comes and makes the request. So the whole family's in on this. Salome comes to Jesus, and, and she's basically jockeying for position for her sons. And mothers have been doing this for their sons for centuries, for millennia. But that's probably not the kind of action that's going to endear the other disciples to James and John. Right? I mean, how many of y'all, you, you had kids that were like in Little League softball or Little League baseball or, you know, select basketball or something like that? And the mom goes to the coach and says, Coach, I think you really need to play my kids more. How do the rest of the kids feel about this? They become indignant. And that's exactly what Mark chapter 10, verse 41 tells us. The disciples became indignant. They became incensed. They became annoyed to no end. And so Jesus has to call all of the disciples together and teach them a lesson about servanthood. And when Jesus teaches them a lesson about servanthood, he lets them know that he himself is the standard. Which before we read the next few verses, I just want you to understand this. Jesus is the standard. And he's not just the standard because he's the example. He's the example because this is the way in which he has served you and me. It's not, oh, here's an example over here. No, this is, this is personal. It's more personal than Jesus setting the example. He set the example because this is the way he served the disciples, and this is the way he serves you and me. So any time any of us ever start going down a track where we're thinking, you know, I serve better than these other people, and, and we start doing this, I think I deserve a higher place, or I think I deserve more recognition, or I think I'm just, frankly, better than these other people. You know what's happening in that moment? In that moment, you're not thinking about Jesus. Jesus says, you keep your eyes on me. I'm the example. I'm the one who sets the tone. And if at any point we start setting ourselves above other people or think that we ought to be above other people because our service or position is superior to theirs, we're doing exactly the same thing 
that John and James were doing. They weren't getting Jesus. That always happens. And it's strange. It happens around churches because churches attract religious people. It's just that when religious people come to the church, we hope that they'll become Christians and not just religious people. So, now, let's stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. This is Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. This morning, I think the message is actually rather simple. We're going to focus on three words. Servant, slave, and ransomed. These three words will help us to understand specifically what Jesus has in mind when he talks about service. Because when we serve, we serve as servants, we serve as slaves, and we serve as people who've been set free. That is distinctively Christian service as opposed to self-righteous or religious service. So let's get into it really simply. We'll start with the, the first thing first. We serve as servants. And Jesus says, if you want to become great, you've got to be a servant. The word that he uses is diakonos. And it's just that word that means people who do the menial tasks. It's the people who would stoop low and wash the feet, which is what Jesus did a little bit later on for the disciples. A servant is somebody who, who goes down low so as to lift from beneath rather than the tyrant who rules from above and pushes down from above. I, I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it. You know that I'm a C.S. Lewis fan, but I haven't quoted him in at least two weeks. And so uh, let's go to C.S. Lewis. This is the grand miracle chapter in his book, Miracles. I love the way he writes this. He says, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the height of absolute being in time and space, down into humanity, down further still, if embryologists are right, down into the womb to recapitulate ancient and pre-human faces of life, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he created. But he goes down to come up again and to bring with him the whole ruined world. That's what he does. He goes down as far as he can so that he can bring up this whole ruined world. That's the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower in order to get himself underneath some complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole burden swaying on his shoulders. Or one may think of a diver first reducing himself to nakedness and glancing in midair and gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water, down into black and cold water, and down to increasing pressure, down into the region of ooze and slime and old decay. And that's what everybody thinks of as sin. That's the betrayal. That's the denial. That's adultery. That's white-collar crime. Everything that you and I would identify as sin, that's the ooze and the slime and the old decay. But he goes down there. And then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks surface again, holding in his hand the dripping precious thing he went down to recover. And what does he go down to recover? John and James and you and me. 
And when we understand that, it changes things. That's how Jesus calls us to serve, to stoop low. I love this statue that used to be at Baylor University. For some reason, it's not there anymore. I think they might have moved it to the Baylor School of Nursing. But there's Jesus just washing Peter's feet, and it just, I don't know, it grips me whenever I see that. But we don't just see that in pictures or in statues. I actually get to see that around here literally all the time. A couple of weeks ago, I saw Rick Gilger in the same posture, only he wasn't washing feet. He was fixing the bottom of a women's bathroom door, which, in case you're wondering, there were no women in the bathroom at the time. But he was down literally in the same posture doing this. I saw this just, I I guess it was either Friday or Saturday. I think it was Friday. I saw Lois Robinson out here working on the exterior doors. I don't know if you've noticed this, but they're, they've been sanded and, and, and they're stained and then they're going to come back and varnish them. And the only way you can get to the bottom is to kneel down on all fours. And I see her out there doing that. That happens literally. It happens, of course, metaphorically. That's how Jesus calls us to serve. Humbly, bending low so as to, to lift. That's, that's one thing that Jesus means by service. You serve as a servant, but more than that, number two, you serve as a slave. When Jesus says, if you want to be first, you've got to be the slave, the word that he uses is doulos. And, and doulos, it, it means slave. Now, you, you could say, well, maybe it's indentured servanthood, and sure, Some people voluntarily became slaves, but sometimes people were involuntarily slaves. But whether you were voluntarily or involuntarily a slave, the idea is you don't have any rights. When you're a slave, your life is not your own. This is why the Apostle Paul begins many of his epistles identifying himself as a slave, a doulos of Christ. Why? Because the Apostle Paul knew that when you're a Christian, Jesus Christ is your head. And what that means is he rules, you don't rule. He makes the decisions, you don't. He makes the choices in your life, you don't. Your life is no longer your own. And so the identity of a slave toward, and and their attitude toward service is a lot different than somebody who's not a slave. For example... If Jesus comes to you and he says, I want you to do these nine things over here, and I want you to do this one thing over here, and then you say, well, I'm just going to do these nine things over here, and I'm going to forget this one, a lot of people from a worldly standpoint are going to say, that's okay, because I've done 90%. And since I've done 90%, that's an A-, and I know it's not perfect, but nobody's perfect, and that's enough to graduate from any kind of school. And we're just going to call it good. You're good with that. If you don't see yourself as a slave, you're good with that when you see that you are the person who is the boss and Jesus is just, I don't know, a chief advisor. He's there to give you insights for living, but you can take it or leave it. And I don't mean that as a negative thing toward you know, Chuck Swindoll because I, he's the bomb. It's a great radio program. But Jesus isn't here just to advise you. He's not here to say interesting things that you can take or leave. He's your master and he's my master. We're slaves. And so when you're a slave, here's the mentality. Whatever you say goes. You're the boss. If you tell me to do these nine things over here and this one thing over here, and I do the nine things and I don't do the one thing, guess what? I get a double F, double minus. That's terrible. Because I'm not seeing myself for who I am. I'm a slave. I'm someone who has given up my rights. 
I'm someone as a member of the body of the Christ who, who, who has Jesus as the head. And when Jesus is the head, that means he calls the shots and whatever he says goes. So when you are a Christian, here's how you serve. You don't serve with selective obedience. Another word for selective obedience is selective disobedience. I'm just treating Jesus as an advisor. He's not my Lord. He's not my master. You don't get to serve that way. And sometimes around churches or religious institutions, religious people will do this. I'm going to serve over here. I'm going to do this and this. And I know I've got this one arena where God's told me, you know, change, repent, rethink your life. And I'm just holding on to this because, you know, it's my life. And I'm not ready for that yet. That's what religious people do. It's not what slaves do. And that's exactly how Jesus served you and me. He bound himself to us even when we had not yet bound ourselves to him. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, for the ungodly. He didn't just bind himself to us as a slave. He bound himself to the Father in a similar way. You go to John chapter 4 and he says, My food is to do the will of the one who sent me. You go to John chapter 14, and it's not on the screen, but in John chapter 14, Jesus says, I don't think that I came to do my own will. I didn't come from heaven to do my will. I came from heaven to do the will of the one who sent me. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, it's not my will that I want to have done. It's your will, Father. It's yours that's going to be done. That's how Jesus relates to the Father. And as Jesus relates to the Father and as Jesus relates to you, so too we relate to Jesus you're the one who calls the shot. It's not my will, but yours that's going to be done. That's the way a slave responds to the master. That's how we serve. Not with selective obedience or selective disobedience, taking Jesus as an advisor. So when we serve, here's what we mean. We serve as servants and we serve as slaves. And you say, well, I don't know that I really like that. Well, here's where it gets a little bit better or worse. I don't know how you want to interpret this. But we serve as servants, we serve as slaves, but we also serve as people who've been set free. And you say, well, what? How's that possible? What do you mean? Where do you get that? It's the very last verse that we read, verse 45. For the Son of Man, even the Son of Man. See, if it's good for Jesus, it's good for you and me. He was like, well, you know, we're better than the Master. No, we're not. No one is above their Master. Jesus says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I don't know that John understood that when Jesus said it. But I think at some point along the way, he had to have understood it, and he probably understood it when he was standing at the foot of the cross because he was the only one of the 12 that was there, along with the women. Maybe that's when he understood, oh, okay, that's, that's the prophecy coming to pass, the suffering servant that's talked about in the book of Psalms. That's... That's what Jesus meant when he said that the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He did that for me. And when it sinks in that he's done that for you, it changes the nature of your service, where you're actually glad to be a servant and you're actually glad to be a slave. Titus talks about this. Titus chapter 2. Verse 14 tells us that Jesus gave himself for us to ransom us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. 
He ransomed us to create us as a special people, holy and set apart, who are eager to do what's good. And you say, well, how in the world can I be eager to be a servant? How can I be eager to, eager to be a slave, especially, you know, with someone who's lost all rights? Well, here's how you get eager to do it. You recognize what's been done for you. When Jesus says, I had to, to be a ransom, what did he mean by this? Well, he meant that we were enslaved. You don't pay a ransom unless somebody is in captivity. The, the word ransom is the word that just simply means to be, to be set free or to have the chains loosened. It came to specifically mean the price that was paid to get someone out of captivity. Jesus recognized the reason I came is because you all were in captivity. You say, well, what do you mean oh, I was in captivity? You were a slave to sin. You were a slave to self. You were a slave to the law. You were a slave to your idols, a slave to sin couldn't help it. It was like in, in your very nature to want to do what it is that God wouldn't have you to do because at the heart of sin is a distrust. But when Jesus Christ died on the cross and you recognize that, you recognize I can trust him because he's held nothing back from me. We were enslaved to self, always wanting to put self first or being concerned about self. But when you see the cross of Jesus Christ and the ransom that was paid for you, you recognize I don't have to worry about putting myself first because he put me first. He loves me more than I love myself, and he knows me even better than I know myself, and so I don't have to be concerned about myself because he's concerned for me in a way that surpasses even my own concern. I don't have to worry about keeping the law so as to get in good with other people as if there's some sort of performance-based acceptance thing because I don't have to work to get accepted by God. I don't have to, get, I don't have to work to get accepted by me because the reality is Jesus Christ has lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died so that I would be in all the way in once and for all and I don't have to perform so as to get in. And you recognize that when he loves you like this, you get set free from all those other idols and the idols in your life can be really good things that you've made ultimate things. And when they're the ultimate thing, here's what happens. They promise more than they deliver. People turn to idols because they think, by these things, I'm going to have meaning and fullness in my life. But they never deliver on those promises, but Jesus delivers on the promise. Now, how in the world could I possibly become a servant and become a slave? Because I recognize he's been a servant and he's been a slave to me and he's captured my heart. And that's why I give myself to him, because he loved me first. The servanthood and the, and the, and the even being bound to him for all eternity, that's not a bad thing when you recognize the depth of his love. I'm counseling a couple right now. I don't want to point them out, but it's Mark and Robin over here. And, uh, you know, they're, they're going to get married, and they're excited to get married. In fact, I've probably been a bad counselor because I said, why don't we just do this, like, now? You know, why do we have to wait? And it's like, yeah, that's a really good idea. You know why they're kind of excited? Because they found someone that would give themselves to the other wholeheartedly without reservation. When you find the one who loves you the way you've wanted to be loved, you want to give yourself to them in return. The service is not a bad thing. It's not a drudgery. Being bound to one another is not, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Everybody's going to be mastered by something or someone. Either you master yourself or your sin masters you or the law masters you or your idols master you. Something is going to be directing your life. And when you found the one master who's worthy to be your master, you get set free from everything else. Giving yourself to him, to the ultimate bridegroom, that's not a bad thing. 
It's a great thing. It's a wonderful thing. And that's why I say we serve as servants and we serve as slaves, but we also serve as people who've been liberated, who've been set free from everything that does not deserve dominance in our lives. And when you've been set free by Jesus Christ and you're truly free indeed, you're changed into a different kind of servant. You say, well, how in the world could I possibly... How do I know that my heart's been set free? Well, here's how. You serve differently. Your motive is different. Let's get very, very practical on this. I want to direct your attention to, uh, to something that I read years and years ago. It's actually been around for, I think, over 25 years. It's this book, Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. He's a Quaker. He used to be a professor at, at Fuller Seminary, and I kind of lost track of him. It wrote this really good book. I'd recommend it. It's been read by over 2 million people, apparently. In the book, he talks about the difference between Christ-shaped service and selfish or self-righteous service. He says there's nine characteristics, nine differentiations. Okay, let me just go through these real quickly. This is very practical, and I'm not going to over-explain because you'll see this is actually rooted in the passage that we've just been reading. Service shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ, number one, comes from a deep friendship with Jesus who lives in you. And you and him, this is in contrast to the service of mere human effort that comes largely through planning and programming, but very little or maybe even no prayer. Service that is shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ, number two, finds it impossible to distinguish the small service from the large service. And this stands in contrast to the self-righteous service that has to be the big deal, because if it's not the big deal in some respect or another, you're not going to get celebrated and It has to be sort of about you. Christ-shaped service, number three, also rests centered in holiness, the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. And again, this is contrasted to self-righteous service, which is only going to happen if you're recognized or rewarded in some respect or another. I mentioned in the first service that, you know, about five years ago or thereabouts, we used to do this Servant of the Week Award. And I was warned, because we like, you tend to imitate what you celebrate. And we have great servants around here, and we want to celebrate them. But I was told at the time that when we did that, there's going to be a few people that are going to be upset because they're not going to get an award. And I discovered who these two or three people were. And guess what? I never recognized them. You know why? Because we don't celebrate self-righteous service. We just celebrate Christian service. And there's a difference there. And I paid the price, but I digress. There's a difference. One, you just serve because you've been transformed by the Holy Spirit, you, who always draws attention to Christ, and when Christ becomes your all in all, you just want to serve. You want to hold his hand. You want to kneel where Jesus is kneeling. And it's, an, it's a beautiful experience, even if you're down on all four, painting the bottom of a door or screwing in a doorstop. Christ-shaped service number four is also free of the need to calculate results, whereas a different sort of service is concerned about statistics and measurables. Number five, Christ-shaped service is indiscriminate in its ministry, serving one and all with equal concern as opposed to the service that is rendered to people on the basis of what they can do for you in return. Jesus said, you know, that's the way pagans relate. 
That's, that's, that's how the world does it. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? If you just pay those who are going to pay you back, what reward are you going to get? Jesus is not concerned about the person receiving the service except that they simply be served because the point isn't you getting anything in return. It's just serving. This is why Jesus gladly serves even those who never receive him. Have you ever wondered about that? Does God really love the whole world? Did Jesus really die for the sins of everyone? That seems like a waste. Well, sometimes grace just spills to the ground unutilized. That happens in my own life. It happens in lives around us. But it's the nature of grace. It's the nature of love to simply give, to give, to give, because that's God's character and nature. The concern isn't on the results. Number six, this is Richard Foster, and I love this. Service that is shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ ministers simply and faithfully because there's a need regardless of the feelings. Number seven, it's a lifestyle where servanthood is for life in all of life. It's not temporal or intermittent. Cross-shaped service also, or cross-shaped service also can withhold the service as freely as it performs it because guilt is not the motivational factor. People don't do things because of guilt. They just do it. Out of love, there's a difference. And then finally, Christ-shaped service, cross-shaped service builds community. Self-centered service will fracture community because in the service, people are doing a one-upmanship on, on one another. And strangely enough, around places of, of religion, people will compete with one another and factions happen because people have judged themselves to be a part of a better group than the other group. And it's different. When you serve... As a servant, when you serve as a slave, when you serve as somebody who knows the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, you serve, like Titus tells us, with eagerness. You're eager to do the good because something has happened inside of your heart. This person who is your master has also revealed himself to be a friend like no other, a bridegroom worth giving your life to till eternity do you part and when you've been set free and you're serving the way Jesus wants you to serve because of his work in your life not because you've gritted your teeth and you've tried harder amazing extraordinary things happen I just want to I want to end with, with this one story and if I've shared it before I'm sorry I can't remember that I have but it's one of my favorite stories it comes from Paul Eshelman who Put together the Jesus film. Have y'all, how many of y'all remember the Jesus film? Does that ring a bell? It was super popular. Not just popular. It was used by God globally. Paul Eshelman was in Hollywood and uh, at a meeting for the Warner Films. That's the people who helped produce and market the film. And they were talking about how to best market this product. And at this particular meeting, the bigwig over all the Warner Brothers marketing of all the Warner Brothers products was there. He was, he was a power broker in Hollywood. So this man's chairing the meeting, and when the meeting's over, he pulls Paul aside and says, Paul, would you mind if I talk to you personally? And Paul says, sure, I'd love to visit with you. And this man explains to Paul, he's, he's Jewish, and he tells Paul, you know that I'm Jewish, right? But I have to tell you something about my life. My wife, and I had, my wife and I had a baby, and as soon as the baby was born, in short order, the baby became very sick. I was walking down the hall upstairs, and I noticed the door cracked open to our maid's room. I, I wasn't meaning to stare, 
But I saw that she was down by her bed on her knees, and I was wondering what was wrong. Later on, I told her, I didn't mean to be nosy, but I noticed you were down on your knees. Are you okay? And she said, oh, yeah, I'm okay. I was praying. I said, what, you were praying? She said, yeah, I was praying. And he asked her, well, what were you praying about? And she said, I was praying for your baby. Ever since your baby's been sick, I've been praying for your baby to be restored to health, for your baby to be restored to your family. In fact, ever since I was hired, I've prayed for you and your wife. Every day as you leave, I pray that you have a good day, that all will go well with you. I pray for you and your whole family every day. He told Paul that 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 touched him and it so moved him and his wife that they started having the maid say a blessing over him and his whole family every day. As they would leave, as they'd walk out the door, she would just say a blessing over him, a blessing over his wife. And then he said, and I have to tell you, a couple of months ago, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. He said she was deathly ill. She was in the hospital. One night I decided to leave the house and walk down the street to our synagogue. And when I walked down the street and got to the synagogue, I saw that they were playing bingo, so I just kept walking. I came to a church where the doors were wide open. I walked in. I met a man. He asked me, can I help you? And I just told him my story. He was one of the pastors of the church. He put his arms around me, hugged me, and prayed for me. The next day, I went to the hospital to see my wife, and the doctor asked, I, I thought you were Jewish. And, and the man says, well, I, I am Jewish. And the doctor said, well, why has there been a pastor in your wife's room praying for her all night? And then with tears streaming down his face, he says to Paul Eshelman, the creator of the Jesus film, he says, Two days ago, our maid died, and I don't have anybody in my life to take me to God. Can you help? Can you take me to God? And Paul Eshelman says, let me get this straight. You want me to take you to God? You want me to talk to you about Jesus? And this Jewish power broker says, that's exactly what I want you to do. And Paul did not leave that office until this Jewish power broker was down on his knees inviting Christ into his life as Savior and Lord. When Jesus sets your heart free, you just sort of serve naturally. I guess serving is this. Serving is just going all in with Jesus, who is all in with you, all in as a servant. And you just kind of go through life and you pray for people. And when they need a hug, you give them a hug. And when they need someone to talk to, you talk to them. And it might even involve you staying up with a spouse and praying. But when you're a servant and it's flowing from that place inside of you that has been redeemed, extraordinary things happen. Now, at this church, we do extraordinary things, and I appreciate the programming and the events. I like Sunday mornings when we get together and the Word is preached and we sing and encourage one another. I thought yesterday's event was extraordinary and wonderful, the whole breaking the cycle event. That was fantastic. But you know what You know what gets me choked up? It's just when you do what you do because of who Christ is to you. When you're praying, 
when you're simply bearing witness, when you're simply loving people in very practical ways, that's when things get interesting because you're communicating that people matter and that's how the kingdom grows when you go all in with Jesus in that way. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for calling us to be servants, for explaining to us that the way to be great is to be a servant. In fact, the way to be first is to be the slave. And you're the greatest, and you're the first, because you were a servant to us and to the Father, not that those two things were in competition. And you bound yourself to the Father's will, and you bound yourself to us when we did not deserve it. To call you a servant kind of humbles us, but when we think about you binding yourself to us and being being even a slave to the likes of us, it just sticks in my throat. I can hardly believe that you would do that. But you did, and I pray, Lord, the fact that you have ransomed us in the way that you have would break us of our selective obedience, that it would break us of our pride, and that in the breaking we would know the liberation that comes when those chains of pride and self-service and performance-based acceptance and all of the idols and all the sin, when those chains are broken, then we are set free not to rule from above, but we are set free to serve as you served us. May it be so in our lives. May we grab hold of your redemptive work. May we see your character and your nature displayed in us and through us that more and more people would come to know you for who you are. Lord, make us servants. May we serve the way you have served us. This is our prayer and we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our friend, our bridegroom like no other, our servant, our slave. In Christ's name we pray all of this. Amen.